just to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. This new episode of the Peter B. Collins Show is sponsored by some great listeners, Gillian G. Hurst, Andrew Krieger, and Joan Fauber. They're all regular contributors to the Peter B. Collins Show. Your voluntary subscription starts as low as $5 a month. Now, we give the show away for free, so feel free to share it with friends. But if you're in a position to help cover our costs, we very much appreciate it. The link is on my homepage at peterbcollins.com. It says you can help. In the second half of today's podcast, we're going to talk with Professor John LaPreeze from Northwestern University. He's been digging into the archives of the Ford administration. And if uh, your history's a little shaky or you're just a youngster, it was Johnson, then Nixon, then Ford. And Nixon, of course, was run out of office because of the Watergate scandal, wiretapping, breaking and entering. Well, President Ford approved some of that stuff, too, before the FISA law went into effect. We'll talk about some of that history with the professor later on in this podcast. But first, Jason Leopold returns. He's deputy managing editor at Truthout.org, the nonprofit news site. Jason, welcome back to our program. Great to be back with you, Peter. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today because a story that you published on the 9th of April opens up a lot of issues that you and I have been talking about, that we've talked about with Andy Worthington, the British journalist who's the expert on Guantanamo. And uh, going back several years to my discussions with advocates for those who were imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere in the American Gulag, including the great people at the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights. But the the headline of your story is that uh, Larry Wilkerson who was the number two to Secretary of State Colin Powell, has signed a declaration that he is willing to testify that Bush and Cheney knew that a lot of the people held at Guantanamo were flatly innocent and that they allowed them to languish there without charge, without trial, and then put some of them through the monkey trials of the military commissions and the uh, detainee review panels. But fundamentally, Bush and Cheney knew that most of the people being held at Guantanamo were not, as they publicly stated, the worst of the worst, but were innocent people who'd been picked up in the the bounty hunts, who were uh, sold into uh, custody of the United States to settle political scores in Afghanistan or Pakistan or elsewhere. So tell us a little bit more about what Wilkerson is saying 
and what yeah. he what he has declared he's willing to testify to. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, he also uh, added, uh, in addition to George Bush and Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, former Secretary of State, and basically what he um, what he has done here. Okay, he signed a nine-page sworn declaration uh, that was filed in support uh, of a lawsuit that uh, um, uh, is, is being filed against uh, current Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, and a slew of other former Bush administration officials. And this was filed by a former detainee named Adele Hassan Hamad. Uh, who says that he was wrongfully detained and tortured uh, in Guantanamo. He was captured in Pakistan in 2002. And it appears that he was, uh, you know, one of the uh, detainees who was sold um, by the Pakistanis to uh, the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, settle political scores like you discussed. Now, Wilkerson, in his nine-page declaration, you know, I have to say that this is the first time, Peter, that we have ever had, okay, that uh, we, we've ever seen a former administration official, Bush administration official, in the capacity, uh, who, who worked in the capacity that, that uh, Lawrence Wilkerson did. Um, he was very high level. He had top secret. Uh, in fact, he says that in his declaration. He had top secret security clearance. He's not talking about what he heard, what he's, he's speaking about what he saw, and what he knows. So this is not any sort of hearsay. Mm -hmm. And he is saying that he is willing to testify under oath, under penalty of perjury, uh, in, in this particular lawsuit, uh, to say that George Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld knowingly kept innocent detainees at Guantanamo uh, in, in order to uh, do two things. One, to to uh, help build a case for war with Iraq. That's one thing that he actually says here. He he, he more or less says that you know detainees were tortured uh, as a result of uh, or or in the hopes that they would provide information linking Iraq with 9/11, Iraq with Al Qaeda. That would that would uh, then be used to justify uh, uh, the preemptive strike and invasion uh, that uh, took place in March 2003. So many of the things that we know that that Wilkerson has said, uh, we already know. I mean, we certainly, as you discussed, we've um, suspected that uh, you know this administration uh, certainly lied about the. Uh, uh, the, the, the threat that the detainees pose, but never before have we actually had somebody willing to state under oath. And that declaration, that's a, that's a sworn declaration, mm -hmm. you know, that, that he put down there under oath. And, and, and he said that, you know, part of the problem uh, that the Bush administration faced, and, and, and that's my word, problem. I think that, uh, you know, what, 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 what he was trying to say is that, um, is that, they were unwilling to let anyone go, even though they knew that they were innocent, because of how it would look to the American people. And let me read a, now, let me read a yeah. quote from your story attributed to Wilkerson's declaration. Their view, and there refers to Cheney and Rumsfeld, was that innocent people languishing in Guantanamo for years 
was justified by the broader war on terror and the capture of the small number of terrorists who were responsible for the September 11 attacks or other attacks. Moreover, their detention was deemed acceptable if it led to a more complete and satisfactory intelligence picture with regard to Iraq, thus justifying the administration's plans for war with that country. Yeah, that's explosive, Peter. I mean, again, we knew this. We saw documents come out to... Uh, certainly last year, uh, uh, former, you know, or, or, or previously secret documents were released that showed that uh, many of the detainees that were tortured uh, were tortured, you know, specifically so the administration could uh, try and extract uh, information that would, would help build a case for war with Iraq. But never before have we actually had somebody, you know, willing to say that under oath. Um, you know, it, it's huge. This is a huge development, and uh, I, I think that what it does is is that it certainly builds the you know the case for discrediting um, certainly the military commissions, uh, the intelligence that this administration, the Obama administration, currently has in their position with regard to many of the remaining detainees there. You know, 183 or so detainees who are there, mm-hmm. uh, certainly the ones that are being held, uh, the 50 that are being held indefinitely. I mean, we simply don't know, you know, what the evidence is uh, for some of them that they, you know, that, that they claim that they have. But, uh, you know, what he said, Wilkerson, is that in the early days, the 742, you know, original detainees that were there, you know, they, the vast majority of them, that, uh, you know, George Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld knew. They knew that they were innocent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to me, what was, um, what I found really important um, is that, as you know, and we've discussed it before, we're continuing to see many documents come out, um, you know, with regard to the previous administration's torture policies, the... Um, uh, the, the fact that, uh, you know, war crimes appear to have been committed here. Uh, and Wilkerson made it, um, you know, made a point of saying that he has decided to come forward um, uh, because he said he made a personal choice to come forward. I, I'm reading, you know, the, his exact quote, uh, and discuss the abuses that occurred because knowledge that I served in an administration that tortured and abused those it detained at uh, Guantanamo and elsewhere, uh, and indefinitely de- in, uh, detained the innocent for political reasons, has marked a low point in my cr- professional career. Uh, and I, I wish to make the record clear on what occurred. So that's a pretty powerful statement. You know, like I said, we have yet to see anyone actually step forward. And, uh, you know, what we continue to see is this administration, the Obama administration, you know, um, continuing to press the previous administration's policies or or to continue to push those forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, This discredits everything. I mean, if anything, Peter, this actually, in my opinion, should hurt uh, the Obama administration's um, effort to move Guantanamo onto U.S. soil. Okay, I mean they're they're simply moving the goalposts, you know, uh, you know, closing down Guantanamo because of the symbol 
that a repre- that you know that that it has come to represent, uh, and, and opening up a, a supermax prison in Illinois to basically implement the exact same policies it should be just as troubling. Well, um, I, I sure agree. You know? And and Jason, let, let's take a minute here because. Um, number one, Wilkerson's comments here provide uh, very credible corroboration of Andy Worthington's work. And Andy had oh, yeah. estimated that uh, well over two-thirds of the ultimate total population of about 770 uh, inmates at Guantanamo were completely innocent of any crime related to terrorism. Now, right. um, I, I watched an interesting documentary over the last couple of days about Salim Hamdan, he is the right. guy who admitted to having been a driver for Osama bin Laden. And he right. was he was present uh, in Afghanistan uh, where uh, bin Laden was uh, residing uh, in the late 90s and uh, up, up to and including uh, September 11th of 2001. And what's fascinating is that he uh, and he, he's not actually willing to be interviewed, so he doesn't appear in the film. But his brother-in-law, who actually uh, set him up as a driver in Sana'a, Yemen, and ultimately feels guilt because uh, he enabled the career choice that uh, Salim made that ended up uh, getting him the gig as a driver for bin Laden. And what they report is that uh, al-Qaeda trainees are told that if they are captured and tortured and interrogated that they must maintain silence for 72 hours. Right. 72 hours, that's all. Yeah. And after that, the cell will have been dissolved, and they can say anything they want because right. the information will no longer be actionable. Now, contrast that, and, and we have to believe that the interrogators at Guantanamo and elsewhere were aware of this, that they got it out of these people. And so with the shelf life of any intelligence that an actual al-Qaeda operative might have being limited to 72 hours, how can you possibly justify holding even a, a, a real suspect for years and years and years uh, without charge and uh, without uh, any kind of a criminal proceeding uh, when you know that any information that you might get out of them as so-called interrogation product could not be useful after 72 hours of their capture. And so the idea that you could waterboard Khalid Sheikh Mohammed 180 times and get more usable intelligence out of him is a crock. And therefore, to have people who are known to be innocent to be left to languish in our prison system, including Guantanamo Bay, uh, for years and years... It is callous beyond humanity and shows that political calculations trumped any moral judgments or any human rights issues that should have reasonably surfaced and have belatedly surfaced with Lawrence Wilkerson. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is, Peter, is that in the course of certainly... You know, Andy Worthington has done an incredible job documenting this. And I think that Will, and, and he's spoken to Wilkerson, you know, uh, on a few occasions. In fact, he did this um, great interview with Wilkerson last year where uh, Wilkerson said that, uh, quote, he's just, uh, he's come to the conclusion that Dick Cheney is uh, just plain crazy. Um, and, you know, that's a direct quote. 
and, and you know, the, the work that he has done, um, you know, documenting this, I, I think Wilkerson's, you know, testimony or sworn declaration here, you know, adds credibility to it. In the early days of, uh, you know, after 9-11, I, I don't, you know, I, I certainly think that the, the, the fact that the administration felt that it needed to torture um, uh, in order to, you know, gain intelligence, uh, you know, that, that is something that, uh, you know, I, I think that certainly came from Dick Cheney's office um, because I think that he truly did believe that, you know, there was, uh, uh, that there was a, an intelligence gap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, is, there, there are areas where I think that, you know, when you talk about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed being waterboarded 183 times, you know, somebody has to give the order on that, Peter. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I can tell you that in the, in the weeks and, and the months ahead, we're going to see a lot more information come out that this, this type of torture of, of detainees at Guantanamo, the interrogations, um, were not only micromanaged by Dick Cheney and David Addington, but we're going to see more evidence of how it really was about, you know, uh, going to war with Iraq. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, we have a little bit thus far, but, you know, uh, Wilkerson talks about the, the, the broader war on terror. Um, I think that it's a, you know, it, 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 it gets to be a little bit more um, compartmentalized than that, and it really does become about Iraq. Uh, and, you know, the fact that they legalize this, you know, uh, and that they continue to, 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 go on, you know, various uh, talk shows and to say that we have obtained, you know, great intelligence, that we learned about al-Qaeda, um, is laughable. But that's the talking point that they want the general public to believe. The fact of the matter is, is that they gained zero intelligence, okay? The people that they, that they have were innocent. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, in the case of... Um, Mr. Hamad, who Lawrence Wilkerson filed his declaration in, in support of, you know, this is a guy who's not only innocent, you know, he was in Guantanamo, his wife was pregnant, she gave birth after he was uh, already detained, uh, their baby died because they had no money, no, you know, they couldn't afford medical care. Uh, uh, you know, he has five other children who lost, you know, five and a half years of his life. Um, for, for nothing. They, they, they had him, you know, declared as an enemy combatant. That was a flawed process. They did another review, which is somewhat unheard of, uh, and said that, uh, you know what, this is, this is a, a person who uh, is innocent, did not, did not, did not uh, you know, deserve to be, uh, you know, detained there. Uh, I, I think that this is something that to me, you know, underscores how difficult um, it is for, you know, people, journalists, reporters to get this information to the general public and to have them, you know, think about Guantanamo differently, think about the people who are there differently. Because the thing is, is, is that, you know, one point in this lawsuit, they made, they made a point of saying that the stigma the stigma of being at Guantanamo. You know, Peter, you could be 
you know, have a different color skin and a different last name and simply be walking on the street and you got picked up, you're, you're thrown in Guantanamo, eventually you're released, but your life is finished, you know, what because simply because you were, you know, in Guantanamo, mm-hmm. you know. So the stigma is something that, that, the, that, that the public, the American public just believes, continues to believe that anyone who's there is the worst of the worst, as Donald Rumsfeld said. As Dick Cheney said, you know, these are nothing but lies. And those are- lies those lies have taken on new life recently, Jason, as Liz Cheney and a murky group that's based on swift boat uh, structure and swift boat tactics um, created this TV spot. And, of course, we don't know if it ever actually ran on television, but it was picked up and uh, given free plays on all the cable news shows. And I, right. it identified... Uh, or it, it called for the identification of what it called the Al-Qaeda 8. And it right. was referring to uh, Obama appointees to the Justice Department who had had some connection to the representation of uh, inmates, detainees, uh, in the Guantanamo system and, and elsewhere uh, during the Bush years. And yep. it demanded that uh, we know who these people are, and it suggested that they are traitors who have uh, somehow, you know, wormed their way into our government. And it repeated the lies that simply if you're at Guantanamo, you're one of the worst of the worst. And now we see that uh, quietly the Obama administration has withdrawn the nomination of uh, Don Johnson, a professor uh, who had written uh, views that I support critical of the Bush administration for its use of torture and unlimited detention, and was uh, demonized as one of these Al-Qaeda eight. And right. so the, the, the right wing has prevailed on this. The Obama administration had, has once again thrown somebody under the bus um, because of uh, you know these smears that have been conducted. And it is yielding uh, to the power of right-wing senators who... Uh, you know, put a hold on Don Johnson's nomination. And it's essentially allowing the mythology to not only uh, continue unchallenged, but to grow in the minds of average Americans that somehow it's dangerous to allow those uh, who are still being held to have their cases heard in our criminal justice system. And that if they set, set foot on American soil that uh, the whole nation will crumble and the terrorists will crawl out of the woodwork. I I mean, it is so remarkable how they have created this kind of hysteria, and it's all built on what we know to be lies. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's amazing, the money, the money that gets poured into disseminating those lies. With Don Johnson, Peter, I have to tell you that this is, you know, as we were discussing earlier, um, this is a major low point for the Obama administration. This is a major low point for Obama. And the fact is, is that Obama a few weeks ago made, I think it was about 15 recess appointments. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. He could have, he could have put Don Johnson in that position. Yes, he could. But you know what? This was a larger issue, Peter. This isn't just about. You know, the fact that uh, uh, Republicans uh, opposed her. I mean, the votes were actually there. When you sit down and you start to count, you know, 
the votes, they were there. This administration did not want her in that position. And the fact is, is that Don Johnson, in many articles, you know, had said um, that uh, uh, we need to resist any temptation to move forward, to basically resist any temptation to, you know, to not look backwards, you know, more or less contradicting uh, uh, Obama's position. Uh, you know, I highly doubt that Don Johnson would have supported this administration's efforts to, you know, kill a U.S. citizen, uh, allow, the U- uh, allow the CIA to kill a U.S. citizen uh, without any due process. Mm-hmm. I think that when it came down to it is that they had no intention of putting her there. Uh, they made the appointment very early on. Uh, as a way to appeal to progressives, to liberals who wanted to see, you know, changes in this office, the Office of Legal Counsel, that was responsible for writing the memo sanctioning torture to, to you know, giving the, uh, George Bush the ability to spy uh, on American citizens. And, uh, you know, the fact is, is that her current positions, her positions all along, simply don't match up to what Obama is currently doing. Yeah. His record, Peter, on civil liberties um, is horrible. His record on, on human rights is horrible. Let me bring your attention, by the way, you know, just, just to stay on this point. Um, when the health care bill was, uh, was, was just about to be voted on, you know, Obama canceled his trip to Indonesia. And uh, he, he, he gave an interview to Indonesian television. Um, this is, you know, most people don't know about this interview, but you can certainly find it on YouTube. I, I, I think there may be something on the White House website. I'm not sure. You have an interview to Indonesian television, and, and the, um, the reporter asked Obama, you know, are you satisfied with the way Indonesia, uh, you know, has dealt with uh, human rights uh, abuses, past human rights abuses? Um, and Obama said, you know, that he's more or less, uh, you know, satisfied with it. And he made a point of saying that in order, you can't move forward without looking backward. <laughs> That's what he said to them about dealing with their, their past. And the fact is, is that, you know, with, with Don Johnson, um, I think that she was somebody that would have been, you know, I don't know, a thorn in their side or uh, somebody that would have pressed, you know, looking forward. I'm not sure if she would have been able to do that in the position as the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. But the fact is, is that in the past few months, Peter, that office, you know, the, the, the Justice Department's Inspector General, the uh, Office of Professional Responsibility, uh, rather, uh, had released a report um, that was highly critical of, despite what John Yoo would have the world think, critical of his legal work, critical of Jay Bybee's legal work, and Jay Bybee, who is the head of that office. Mm-hmm. You would think that this president would want to install somebody immediately to bring back, um, you know, order, uh, or, or to restore order in that office, to make sure that things, you know, work uh, properly, in a sense. Um, but the, like I said, the fact is, is that with his expanded use of drones, 
with uh, the fact that, um, you know, he's got the CIA now. Uh, I mean, it, it's in plain view. It's, you know, I, I'm not sure if, we're, if we should thank Obama for, you know, for, for transparency, telling us that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, he's, he, he's uh, authorized the uh, CIA to kill a U.S. citizen. These are things that, you know, this, this nominee, Don Johnson, just uh, uh, wasn't in support of. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, is that they were unwilling, unwilling to, to fight it. You know, this wasn't about, sure, there were Republicans that, uh, that uh, opposed her. And there were some Democrats, too, such as Ben Nelson. Um, but, you know, like I, I, we, I may have mentioned this to you, you know, during previous discussions we had. We, we've seen what the Democrats and what the administration was, are, uh, uh, is willing to do when it comes to health care. They're willing to go out there and fight for this bill, you know, uh, and, and, and get it passed, as flawed as it is. You know, they got it passed. They got bloodied in the process. And people are retiring and, 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 you know, jobs are at stake. But when it comes to civil liberties, when it comes to human rights, when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, the law, they're horrible. This administration, in, in, in my opinion, is worse than Bush. And you know why they're worse than Bush? Because we are seeing, Peter, clear, clear-cut evidence of, of, uh, of what amounts to a cover-up. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing the cover-up in process. And it's getting worse as more time goes on, as more is being re- more um, malfeasance and, and illegal behavior is being revealed. We're just seeing this administration continuing to cover up, and we're seeing it in plain view. And I think that that is, you know, that is worse than actually, you know, committing the crimes. You know, I've always, I've always felt that, like, you know, when you stand by and, and, and watch these things happen uh, and allow it to, to, to sort of get swept under the rug, you know, it makes you, uh, the, the, the person, the administration, the, the various people involved in the process, uh, not just as guilty, but, but, but even more so. Uh, well, and, I mean, and... I have to tell you that in terms of, like, you know, the, 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 uh, the issues facing the, uh, the Pope and the, uh, uh, the Vatican in general, I mean... Yes, the person, the, the priest that, that committed these uh, uh, these crimes against children uh, is uh, certainly, uh, you know, he is, I'm not sure how to phrase it. I mean, it, it, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. But the Pope ultimately is the one that looks worse because he allowed it to happen. Well, and, and I have described what Obama is doing as obstruction of justice. I don't know if it meets the uh, legal, technical language of, of the law, but uh, a layperson, I think, would, would certainly see it that way. Jason, let me, let me turn to the motive here of Larry Wilkerson, because um, I, I think it's great that he's gone public. Um, certainly the timing of this, uh, it doesn't bother me, but it raises questions, because uh, it means that he's known about these things for a long time and yeah. has finally decided uh, that it's it's worth the risk to him politically and otherwise to go public. So it's really a two-part. What are Wilkerson's motives, and why is not Colin Powell saying these things? Because yeah. he was the principal. Uh, Wil- Wilkerson was his uh, office manager, chief of staff, or deputy. Um, but uh, is this a proxy statement coming from Colin Powell 
Uh, can we can we perceive it that way? Or is this that Colin Powell doesn't have the same level of balls that Larry Wilkerson does to uh, take on this powerful narrative and the political forces of both parties to speak the truth? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Um, and in, in Larry Wilkerson's defense, he actually did discuss this um, at length last year. Uh, he, he laid this out in a, um, in a blog post, believe it or not, of... Uh, uh, of all places, on um, small think tanks website, mm-hmm. and uh, so he's been talking about this. I mean, the, like I said, the, the the main difference now is is that he has put it. You know, he he has written it under the penalty of perjury. He is saying that he's willing to testify, and he actually went to you know a little bit. He included some more detail in terms of uh, uh, you know what Cheney knew, but in terms of the overall issue of Guantanamo. Uh, you know, he has said it before. Um, with his motivation this time around um, is the fact that he has worked with the attorney. Uh, he's developed a, uh, a, a friendship, if you will, with the attorney representing uh, uh, the detainee who's suing Robert Gates and, and others for um, uh, being wrongfully detained. And, and basically, in that, this declaration was actually going to be filed in support of the habeas case that was that was still alive mm-hmm. okay that even though the detainee um, uh, mr. Hamad had had been released in 2007 and by the way Peter he actually had been cleared for release in 2005 um, but his attorneys weren't told about it for two years wow. so he continued to remain in prison in Guantanamo for two years. So even so even said, even the kangaroo yeah. court, uh, these these uh, uh, detainee uh, uh, panels, even the kangaroo court found him innocent. Yet uh, the Bush administration ignored that for two full years. That's correct. Wow, that is correct. And uh, so he was going to, along with you know about a hundred others who were released, their habeas cases continue to, um, their attorneys continue to, you know, press or, or, or try to push the, a judge to rule on their habeas cases, even though they were released. And part of that is so, you know, can remove the stigma, the travel restrictions that, were, that are imposed, uh, you know, as a result of, um, you know, because their name isn't cleared. It basically comes down to, like, clearing their names, Peter. Mm-hmm. Right. And a couple of weeks ago, um, the judge, uh, you know, had dismissed all of these cases, basically said that because the detainees were released, the habeas proceedings, therefore, are moot. Um, and, and that's not obviously not how the defense attorney saw it. So uh, Wilkerson was actually going to file this declaration in support of, the, of uh, Mr. Hamad's habeas petition, uh, that was continuing to go through the course. So when that got dismissed, you know, his attorneys, you know, turned around and, and, and again, they're basically trying to, uh, you know, to get justice for, you know, for, for him. And, uh, you know, that's when the agreement came in to, that the, um, the declaration would be filed in support of the lawsuit. And, again, I think it makes a pretty powerful statement, um, and it is, uh, you know, something that uh, uh, I think is going to be very difficult for his attorneys to try and uh, get a court, um, 
uh, federal court to uh, you know to, to to allow the case to move forward. They're they're trying to uh, they're trying to get the to get it heard in the Ninth Circuit, which has been more or less, you know, somewhat sympathetic to these types of issues. Mm-hmm. But in terms of Colin Powell, you know, I, like I said, you know, you said that it just doesn't have the balls that Larry Wilkerson has. I think that's, I think that's true. I think we've seen that. You know, uh, Colin Powell has been uh, has been silent, and and I think that, in a way, you know, <clears throat> while while Larry Wilkerson certainly is, you know, speaking for himself. I think that, uh, you know, some people are, uh, th- there's a hope that it, he would also represent what Colin Powell says. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that his, spo- excuse me, Colin Powell's spokesperson um, on Friday said that uh, that he has not seen the declaration, so therefore had no comment on it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so that more or less tells you where Colin Powell stands. And, and, and the fact is, is that, you know, in this declaration, what's really important, Peter, and that people need to know is that, and they can, by the way, can read the entire declaration, which is linked to in the story. So, you know, you can just, it's nine pages, it's a quick read. But he actually says, you know, that Colin Powell was involved in these conversations. I mean, you know, people were, had to ask me over the weekend, well, you know, isn't he implicating Colin Powell? And I said, well, he already did. It's in this, it's in this declaration. Yeah. He said, I was involved in daily meetings along with 55 to 60 other people for three years, beginning in August 2002, and detainee issues were discussed. And, um, you know, Colin Powell expressed his, you know, disappointment and being upset that uh, uh, we couldn't repatriate, uh, you know, some detainees because of the, you know, political issues involved. The Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, had just refused to let them go. So, you know, Powell is named in there. Um, he's identified as, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say somebody complicit, but somebody who's certainly uh, aware of what was happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a true explanation other than, you know, perhaps he's, you know, obviously if Colin Powell came out with something like this, I think it would be even more, it would have more of an impact. It would, you know, it would land in the New York Times, Peter. I mean, uh, this story actually has not been reported by the New York Times. It hasn't been reported by the Washington Post. We've seen MSNBC do something on it briefly, but it really has sort of, uh, you know, been uh, uh, kept, uh, you know, just on more or less, you know, independent Internet-type websites Mm -hmm. uh, and the U.K. media. I mean, that's it. So somebody like Colin Powell coming out with it, I think, would come with its own, or if he were to issue a similar statement, would... um, would, would certainly have a greater impact, yeah. and that may be the reason he's not saying anything. Perhaps they, you know, perhaps they did discuss it, and the agreement was like, "Well, Larry, you're the guy that's been out here doing this, uh, so continue to do it." Mm-hmm. Um, hard to tell because, you know, like I said, his his spokesperson simply won't, you know, just said that. Well, he hasn't seen it, and therefore won't comment on it. Yeah. So. Well, Jason, great reporting. I want people to read your story at truthout.org. And uh, just a a final set of issues here. Uh, Justice Stevens has finally uh, submitted his resignation, his retirement. And the uh, right-wing senators are already piling on, even though there's no nominee for the Supreme Court opening. Oh, yeah. Yet uh, they're marking out territory. And again, we see the Obama administration not really pushing back, just uh, kind of accepting all of this free advice 
that, uh, you know, he shouldn't appoint somebody who's too radical. And right. given what we've seen, it would be viewed I, as radical if he appointed somebody to the bench who views uh, these issues as uh, serious and right. who would take at face value, for example, the declaration of Lawrence Wilkerson. So we, 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 exactly. have, we have the prospect here that uh, with what I think is the pivotal opening on the court, uh, and it's now in the Obama administration's second year, so there's no excuse for a tepid approach, but I think they will put up a, a very centrist, uh, kind of pre-approved nominee who will have no baggage when it comes to the so-called war on terror and these illegal and unethical, immoral uh, detention right. policies. Yeah, I don't think we need to worry about Obama appointing somebody that's radical because, let's face it, you know, he, he, he has yet to take even health care. That's not radical either. Um, so Obama has yet to do anything radical. Uh, that's simply just, uh, you know, uh, a fallacy and, and disinformation. Uh, you know, we would, it, it would be great if, you know, I mean, look, they, people think that, that, in fact, the right wing has said that Don Johnson was ra- a radical choice, you know, a person who actually believes in upholding the law and wants to hold those accountable for breaking it is radical. Right. So, you know, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, this, Obama and the administration in general still looking to make, make everyone happy. And, and, and it's going to come at a cost. And, and, and we're the ones who are going to pay for it. Jason, thanks for your reporting and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Peter. Always a pleasure. Jason Leopold, Deputy Managing Editor, Truthout.org. And the Peter B. Collins Show continues. We are sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Click on the link on our homepage at PeterBCollins.com. We've got a special introductory offer with a discount just for you. continuing coverage of the rollback in our Fourth Amendment rights over the last few years, and a courageous Republican-appointed judge here in federal court in San Francisco recently declared that the so-called warrantless wiretapping initiated by President Bush was flatly illegal. And I've never used that euphemism, uh, warrantless, at least not intentionally and not uh, purposefully. Because from the get-go, I thought it was illegal. And that's why I call it illegal wiretapping. There's some interesting developments, research into the era before the FISA law went into effect. That was in 1978. And back in the Ford administration, there were some efforts to uh, uh, surveil people, and we didn't have that particular law that required the special court to issue a warrant before domestic surveillance could occur. John Laprise is a visiting assistant professor in the communication program at Northwestern University's campus in the United Arab Emirates. He checks in from Doha in Qatar today. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for 
Uh, let me talk on your show. Uh, by the way, uh, Northwestern is actually in Doha, Qatar, rather than uh, UAE. I see. Okay. And and this is the same Northwestern University that I went to in Evanston, Illinois? Same university. Okay. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I was there um, during the Nixon era, actually, and then I had a radio program in Chicago when President Ford uh, took over. And so I remember some of this era uh, perhaps more vividly than others. Now, you've been doing some interesting research that has taken you into uh, the Ford presidency. Tell Mm -hmm. us about the general scope of your research and uh, why you uh, published some comments that I found through uh, Professor Mark Crispin Miller uh, about some of the domestic surveillance that was underway during the Ford administration. Well... Generally, my research looks at uh, White House computer adoption and information technology policy during the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So I start looking at how uh, the Nixon White House began adopting computers for the first time for the White House, and I survey the whole decade up through the Carter administration. Okay. Uh, and and, and we, what, what were computers being used for? You make a reference here that John Haldeman, who was uh, famous, H.R. Uh, uh, Haldeman, I'm sorry, John Ehrlichman was his buddy. Uh, Haldeman uh, was famous for being one of the people who uh, got caught in the Watergate scandal in the cover-up and ended up doing some jail time. And Haldeman was the political director, kind of the Karl Rove of that era, in the Nixon White House. What was his interest in computers, which were, uh, you know, very crude and rudimentary compared to what we have today? Uh, Well, during the Nixon White House, um, computers were adopted initially for the National Security Council to perform simple sort of bookkeeping and accounting functions and information management functions. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, because it it was a national security uh, requirement because the National Security Council was being inundated with data from Vietnam, uh, from just the Cold War data that was being accumulated by the various intelligence agencies, that they were finding themselves overwhelmed. And so the National Security Council went ahead and decided to adopt a computer. Um, it being a national, ex- national security expense or device, it needed uh, redundancy. And so the computer that was being used in the White House at this time uh, had a lot of sort of spare cycle time. And um, the political operatives in, in the White House, Haldeman included, looked at the uh, National Security Council's computer as a potential resource because uh, in the run-up to the 1974 elections, uh, Creep had been doing quite a lot of work on voter registration databases, actually. Uh, what they lacked was a computer to do some of the uh, analysis that they had that they wanted to do on the information they gathered, and they had uh, looked at the NSC computer as a potential uh, place to find that computing time that they could use. Now you reference Creep. Uh, that was the acronym Committee to Reelect the President. A very poor choice in acronym land. And tell us yeah. a little bit: were, were these Fortran computers where? The data were compiled on these huge decks of cards that, uh, oh, I mean, it, it was a kind of massive way to collect the information. Uh, actually, these were these were actually early IBM mainframes that they oh. were using. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, uh, and this was actually um, put together, the whole project was put together actually um, following a very embarrassing staff meeting for 
then National Security Advisor Kissinger when the State Department then basically embarrassed him uh, in a conference meeting because they had a list of, you know, 30 or 40 action items, which they had neatly arrayed through what would might be a rudimentary spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took the National Security Council about three weeks to uh, uh, track down all the items. And Henry Kissinger uh, basically said this was unacceptable and went forward and ordered the computer. And so over a stretch of probably about a year, of research with the Rand Corporation and bringing in consultants from the Department of Defense, uh, they arrived at a computing solution which included um, uh, an IBM computer. Hmm. Very interesting. I didn't realize uh, in, in that era that uh, you know that IBM was making computers other than the hardware for the systems I referenced with all those decks of cards. Yeah, they were using some early magnetic tape. Um, uh, they also had uh, desk-mounted terminals. Uh, and of course, all of this had to be vetted for security as well because the information that was going on it was uh, in part classified. Mm-hmm. So there's some early security protocols associated with it. Uh, it it's, it's actually one of the, in, in, in my research, it turns out to be one of the most successful adoptions of technology that I've run across. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, in your research, you came across a declassified memo that came to you from the Ford Presidential Library. Tell us a little bit about this and why it caught your attention. Well, actually, the the, the memo in question, um, I had I had actually not gotten declassified, or rather, I had um, had to use the Freedom of Information Act to uh, request. Um, and when I received it, I was quite startled as it. Uh, asserted um, that the it asserted um, going forward with a, a wireless uh, or an electronic surveillance memo or it enabled electronic surveillance. Um, this memo had been previously released um, about four years earlier to the National Security Archives in Washington D.C. But there was one sentence that was not present, uh, which had been redacted in the version that the archive had received, uh, which enabled um, the Attorney General of the United States to use um, what was, uh, quote, minimal physical intrusion, unquote, to emplace electronic surveillance devices. Now, in this period of time, um, before FISA, the place... Electronic surveillance was not regulated or was not illegal under the law. Um, however, um, the the sort of authorization of physical intrusion um, was clearly um, a violation of the law without without a warrant. And of course, um, the the two major episodes were the uh, uh, burglary at the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist where we have no indication that any surveillance equipment was installed, but they did uh, sift through the files there. And then, of course, the infamous uh, break-in at the Watergate headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. Now, um, were they, E. Howard Hunt and the other so-called plumbers were part of that team. Uh, And so it's pretty astounding that with those events recent in the political memory, that the Ford White House would be authorizing break-ins for the purpose of installing wiretaps. It is pretty surprising, but 
there's some some other background information that, that at least sheds some light on what the thinking was in the Ford administration. So in at the very beginning of the Ford administration, just as he took office, uh, President Ford had been previously involved in actually uh, sort of paradoxically many uh, or a lot of research on uh, privacy and implementing privacy within the federal government. And in the course of that research and in the work of the Rockefeller Commission, uh, uh, Rockefeller becoming Ford's vice president, um, one of the things that was revealed was the fact that um, the government, the U.S. government, believed that the Soviet Union was surveilling U.S. telecommunications networks. They were intercepting the micro, microwave transmissions, which were a new technology at the time, um, and using that information, so they thought, to co-opt U.S. citizens into becoming Soviet agents. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, we're in the middle of the Cold War, so this is not... Um, this is not uncommon thinking. Uh, and in worrying about this, uh, one of the things they're doing is worrying about the Soviet surveillance, and they implement a whole program of um, telecommunication security um, policy, which actually lays the groundwork for many of the things that are present today in the U.S. government. Um, but this memo con- that authorizes the attorney general to conduct electronic surveillance and uh, perform these break-ins where necessary uh, came very early before many of these policies were actually implemented. So in some ways, at least in the course of the research, it seems that Ford is throwing some sort of stopgap out there um, in in service to this policy of protecting um, U.S. citizens. Um, And I think at this point it's really important to, to think about two different versions of privacy. I mean, the type of privacy that we normally think about is the freedom of citizens to be protected from intrusion by their own government into their daily affairs. Um, There's another definition of privacy which I've discovered in the course of my research that um, is really housed in sort of the upper echelons of the White House, which is the government also has the responsibility to protect um, U.S. citizens from foreign surveillance. And time and again, it is this definition that trumps the personal privacy argument for citizens. So where the two come into conflict, the government tends, tends almost in every case, that I, the, actually in every case I, I can, I've found, the government is going with the, we need to protect U.S. citizens from foreign surveillance, uh, even at the expense of individual privacy. Well, and Dr. Laprise, as you're citing that, uh, I'm reminded that uh, the biggest part of the Watergate scandal that led to the passage of the FISA law was that Nixon falsely claimed uh, to the FBI that uh, it should back off from investigating the Watergate burglary because of national security reasons. So he was trying to use the CIA and other agencies as a buffer against a domestic uh, a criminal investigation by the FBI. So, uh, once again, my uh, BS detector goes off when Ford asserts that there's a national security reason and that this is to protect Americans from, uh, you know, surveillance by communists, by, by, the, mm-hmm. by the Soviets. Uh, do you find that these were legitimate claims that he was making? Is there corroboration? 
There is. I mean, uh, much of the corroboration, of course, comes from the intelligence agencies. But from all the documentation and all the research I've done, I'm very convinced that Ford actually believed that, you know, he and the government was coping with a very clear and present danger to um, uh, to, to the U.S. In, in the form of this Soviet surveillance. Now, that being said, um, some of the the reasons for this are somewhat suspect in, you know, looking back on it, uh, in part because the U.S. was projecting at that time its own electronic surveillance capabilities upon uh, the Soviet Union. So it was looking at, it was anticipating what the Soviets could do with electronic surveillance based on U.S. capabilities, which were approximately five to ten years ahead of the Soviet Union at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's very much like the uh, the argument of the bomber gap in the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, using various uh, analytical tools, everyone thought that, oh, the Soviets have so many more bombers, we have to, uh, to build better defenses or build more missiles. And in this case, the Soviets have much better surveillance technology than they may actually have, uh, but we have to cope with it as though they had as good as we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I mean, there's a lot of other things going on at the same time. I mean, AT&T is being deregulated, and you have competitors such as MCI coming onto the scene. And so the government is sort of doing a very delicate balancing act of uh, making governmental policy while trying not to influence public policy. Uh, and in fact, the Ford administration makes the decision not to reveal um, telecommunications security policy that they're making to Congress or the FCC mm-hmm. uh, for fear of uh, the public reaction, especially following Watergate. Um, and this this uh, particular episode and, and the memoranda were not exposed prior to the passage of the FISA law. No. So it, it did remain uh, a secret and... Uh, so that's that's an interesting part of this. Now, uh, you reference the WikiLeaks story about the Apache helicopters and uh, the uh, uh, attack on this area in New Baghdad that ultimately took the lives of two Reuters reporters. And that's one of the reasons we know about this uh, now. And mm-hmm. for listeners who may not have heard it yet, we covered this with uh, journalist Darja Mail in podcast 121, which you can find at peterbcollins.com. But, uh, Dr. Laprise, what is your sense of how there might be similarities here to the way the Pentagon attempted to block uh, WikiLeaks' release of this video footage from the war in Iraq? Well, I, I mean, I do a lot of research in this area, and it seems to me that the grounds for uh, classification of information um, has increasingly included uh, items that are uh, the, the items that are classified are in some sometimes you know for legitimate national security reasons and I have no problem with that but there's also a cl- category of items that are classified and kept secret that are either embarrassing mm-hmm. to the U.S. government or downright illegal actions. Now, in the case of the Ford memo. The memo was mo- was classified up until, I believe, 1996, and then it was made available through the National Security Archives in 2006, I believe. And uh, in almost fully 
uh, unredacted form, only that one sentence which uh, captured the illegal action um, was still blacked out. And that mm-hmm. was just blacked out four years later. I mean, one sentence in this whole memo was all that they had cut out, but it was a, pr- a pretty crucial sentence. Um, and the, in the case of the Apache helicopter, um, again, it, it, in this case, the, the classification is being applied to conduct that is either embarrassing to the U.S. government or um, potentially criminal. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've been a critic of the Obama administration for its willingness uh, to extend some of the bad legal precedents that were established uh, under Bush-Cheney. And that includes what you're describing, which is using classification to cover up embarrassing and illegal actions. And most notably, we've had two cases here in uh, the courts in San Francisco. One is the Al-Haramain case that we'll talk about in a moment. The other was the appeal heard at the Ninth Circuit in the case of Binyan Muhammad and others who were held at Guantanamo Bay, having been transported there through what we call extraordinary rendition, kidnapping, and then the use of uh, private jets to uh, take them to third countries where they have been tortured. And uh, Muhammad and uh, four other uh, plaintiffs had sued the U.S. government and a division of Boeing called Jeppesen Aviation, which uh, actually was the so-called torture taxi, Uh, they provided the leased jets that were used by the government to ferry these individuals around. And the uh, Obama uh, legal team stunned the court uh, very early in the Obama administration, I place it in uh, February of 2009, when they extended the same arguments that the court had heard from the Bush Justice Department, Uh, causing one of the justices on the court to say, uh, have you checked (laughs) with the Mm -hmm. White House? Is this really what you're telling us? And they said, oh, yes, this has been vetted to the top. So um, I not only uh, decry the use of classification to cover up the misdeeds of the current administration, but when the succeeding administration attempts to do the same, uh, we've got a real problem. And and the issue here that's almost Kafka-esque is that most of the information is wide out in the is is out in the wide out? What what am I trying to say? It's out in the open. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's hidden in plain sight. I yes, mean, exactly. Um, I, I in fact I was actually doing some further work today, and you know, my research uh, is basically taking lots of pictures in in presidential libraries and archives, and I collect huge amounts of data. I have twenty five thousand pictures on my hard drive right now. Of each one, like one page, and going through it, I, you know, you come across other documents that, in the course of research, you just sort of happen to discover uh, that are important. I've found a couple more today that I'm um, distributing. But with respect to the the two cases that you mentioned, um, I think that the I certainly agree with you with respect to. Uh, the latter case, uh, the, to- the torture taxis and the, the precedents that they're trying to advance. On the Al-Haramain case, I think th- there are a couple of things going on in, in the surveillance sphere, and uh, I've discussed this at, in various uh, places online, and that is, it is unclear to me that the current electronic surveillance program is actually illegal. Um, there is pre- 
provision made for government access to information that's collected by telephone companies regarding uh, billing or administrative functions. Um, and that is not protected by uh, U.S. Civil Code. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I suspect is occurring is the government is, in fact, trying to cover for telecommunications companies who are their partners in in the whole endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there, there are because, kind of two because, aspects. Because they, have li- because they do have liability, at least some liability, perhaps even after the immunity uh, legislation went through. Right. There are kind of two aspects to the NSA's domestic operations uh, that, that I see. One is the data mining. To go to my phone record and see that on this date that I placed an overseas call to you in Qatar. And with that information, they could then go to the interceptions um, that uh, I believe are a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment, even if they have been regularized or normalized or even legalized by the FISA reform, the Act of Congress in 2008. And so they take the data mining information so that they can find out that I made that call, and then they go to their, uh, their hard drives, these huge server farms that they have built, uh, to, to store all this data, and they can then retrieve the call and find out exactly what you and I discussed. Yeah, but there's an important step that they, that they go through in between, or at least that I suspect they go through in between. I mean, this is, this is all conjecture. But having taken your pattern of phone calls... They then have also on tap um, a number of profiles for terrorist A, terrorist B, terrorist C. Um, and they compare your profile with these other profiles, and they're looking for similarities. It's all, it's all a lot of statistics. Um, and when they find a match, they then take that information, just that the pattern is the same, to the FISA court. And the FISA court grants them a warrant because that provides the FISA court with cause for the warrant, at which point, and only at that point, do they actually start looking at the content. So I don't believe the government's probably actually doing anything illegal, and my research has convinced me um, pretty strongly that the government actually works, bends over backwards to avoid doing things that are illegal. Um, The problem here is that in providing the information to the government, the telecommunications companies, at least in the past, um, have been opening themselves up to liability because uh, while governmental law, uh, administrative law, has not caught up with this kind of technology, with the data mining technology uh, that's out there, um, commercial privacy and telecommunications law does cover those kinds of issues. And so while the government's sort of in the clear, in an illegal situation, a situation where the law has not extended, Mm -hmm. um, telecommunications companies are definitely on the hook. And I think that's what we saw when um, telecommunications companies were pushing so hard to uh, receive immunity most recently. Right. The the only shred of evidence that we have, and I offer it uh, in argument against your your, uh, the, the theory that you offer, is in the Al-Haramain case. And mm-hmm. that is that uh, the court and the plaintiff's attorney, John Eisenberg, who I interviewed uh, about a week ago, uh, in, in separate instances, both talked to the representatives of the Justice Department. 
And they said, show us the warrant. And if you have a warrant, Eisenberg said, you will never hear from me again. And he said, you don't have to do this in public, but you can show it to me in, in camera, in, in the uh, chambers. Right. Or, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go to Starbucks and you can show it mm-hmm. to me. He said, but if you have a warrant, show it to me and I'll be gone. And they did not do so. And likewise, Judge Walker who had to dance around the fences that were thrown up by the Obama administration yeah. to the pursuit of this case, saying that uh, the defendants, uh, I'm sorry, the plaintiffs couldn't prove that they'd been wiretapped because we took back the document that proved that they had been wiretapped. Well, right. Walker was able to prove from non-classified sources mm-hmm. that there were admissions that al Haramain had been surveilled. And right. so... In those cases, and, and, and also uh, in his decision, uh, Judge Walker explicitly said that he had asked the government to show them, show him the warrant that authorized the surveillance of Al Haramain and its its attorneys, and yeah. the, the government's failure to do so was one of the critical reasons that Walker ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. Yeah, well, I think I think what we have here is sort of um, this. If I recall right, so there, there was some um, walk back during the Bush administration in terms of, you know, are we going to start pursuing warrantless surveillance? How are we going to deal with FISA? There are different terms in which we've, we're suspending FISA or we're going to take this other route around FISA. And from the sound of it and from what I've read, I suspect that the the work the surveillance against in the Al Haramain case is one of these instances where they were working around FISA rather than working with FISA, mm-hmm. and so indeed in that case they didn't have the warrant. And it could be was, the it could be the only one. We we yeah. have we have no way of knowing whether this no. represents a significant pattern or a a simple anomaly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no way of knowing. But if you read James Bamford's book, uh, he cites several people who were working for the NSA whose job was to review these telephone calls. And each day they would be given a batch of them. And they were embarrassed by the calls that they were monitoring. And this does not speak specifically to whether or not there was a warrant, because that didn't really come up in in Bamford's coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were listening to calls from soldiers in Iraq who were calling yeah. home and having steamy conversations with a wife or a girlfriend, and they found that very intrusive. And And so I would have to suspect that this does represent a pattern and not an exception. Yeah, no, I, I'm familiar with Bamford's books as well, and, and I agree with you that, that that kind of thing shouldn't be happening, at least at that scale. I mean, when you're doing, if you're pursuing the kind of statistical method I, I was outlining with respect mm-hmm. to uh, networking theory, then there's a certain percentage of mistakes, or you will end up surveilling the wrong people from time to time. I mean, mm-hmm. Um, if you if you're looking for a certain pattern of terrorist A, you may end up catching philandering husband A who maintains multiple identities in multiple cities and uh, multiple bank accounts and all that. And so they look very much they have patterns of movement and patterns of communication that resemble one another. Yeah, but so that's that's up... that's just Tiger Woods. 
Yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's amazing he hasn't been picked up already. Um, but uh, but and you'd expect to see some of those errors, um, but nothing like sort of the, on the scale of what um, what what Bamford says in his book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I do accept your overall argument that the uh, the, the massive task of uh, filtering through all of the uh, conversations and emails that they have captured um, requires them to set up systems to sift through it all. And uh, certainly the data mining operations help them identify uh, which calls might be suspect, which ones might uh, produce uh, actionable intelligence or other information. Uh, At the same time, uh, I'm still skeptical that we didn't see widespread abuse of the Fourth Amendment and of the FISA law uh, under the practices, uh, particularly during the Bush era. Mm-hmm. No, I'm I'm in complete agreement with you there. Yeah. Um. I I I, you know, I, I haven't seen any evidence to the, to, to the contrary of that. And and to your point, I, I'm not so sure that during that time, with uh, you know people like Cheney. And uh, his his chief of staff, David Addington, uh, talking about, you know, incredible uh, terms of presidential power. I don't think they were bending over backwards to avoid breaking the law. Well, actually, I think what they were doing and I think what they were doing and not so much Addington, but but Cheney and Rumsfeld were re-implementing the same programs that they were involved in in the Ford administration, because if you recall, Cheney was Ford's chief of staff, right. and Rumsfeld was his secretary of defense. Right. And they were involved in all of these discussions in the National Security Council with respect to Soviet surveillance and telecommunications security. And I really think that they simply dusted off the Cold War plan that they had uh, developed in the Ford administration. We have a foreign threat. We have an external threat. And we're trying to prevent infiltration. This worked before during the Cold War. We'll just dust it off and re-implement it here with the new technology. That's a very powerful point. And I, I agree with it wholeheartedly <laughs> because we saw a lot of that uh, where Cheney was. Uh, I mean, if you look at him over that 30, 35-year period, um, he argued internally in the Ford administration to expand presidential power and was largely rebuffed. Yeah. And then, yes, because uh, Ford Ford was um, Ford rebuffed him consistently. Yes, and and then as Secretary of Defense under Bush one, uh, Cheney was able to you know move some of these balls down the field, but it wasn't until he selected himself as Vice President and uh, they were inserted by the Supreme Court in two thousand one that he was able to fully. Uh, you know, uh, exercise these desires that he yeah. had harbored for so long. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, uh, Dr. Laprise, anything else you want to add to this? Because I think that it does give us some context uh, for what occurred over the last 10 years. Yeah, the only thing I, I really want to bring out, and I really have to emphasize, because it's it's really clear in the research, and it doesn't come out quite as easily, is that... Um, Ford actually is one of the early champions of individual privacy. Um, 
due to his effort, his efforts are in part responsible for FISA. They're responsible for the first laws that govern how the government uses personal data, like your income tax data or uh, your social security data, um, and how the government protects that information from itself when it holds it. Um, Ford is largely responsible for that. Mm -hmm. And in spite of all this, uh, you know, the electronic surveillance and the break-ins, uh, or the authorization for physical intrusion, um, Ford really shines as as really a, a, a protector of personal privacy, as sort of paradoxical as that is. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that I, I think you're correctly characterizing his instincts, and he he was a kind of good government Republican, uh, and yet he inherited a, a team that he largely retained from Nixon. Yeah. Uh, that had a very different view. And those tensions surfaced more than once uh, in the brief period that Ford was president. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for your time today and uh, appreciate the research that you've been doing. And please reach out to me when you find something else that's uh, as fascinating as this. I will do so, Peter. Jonathan Laprise joining us. He's with Northwestern University and uh, today in Doha, Qatar. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode and Benny at the NSA. Hope you enjoyed it. Send me an email, peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling under.